0: Standby for Places presents Apropos of Nothing, a collection of short stories by Edgar Allan Poe. Table of Contents, The Mask of the Red Death, performed by Alexandra Kopko. The Facts in the Case of M. Valdemar, performed by Torian Brackett. The Black Cat, performed by Gabby Van Horn. The Oblong Box, performed by Patrick Pizzola-Russo. Landor's Cottage, performed by E. James Ford. The Tell-Tale Heart, performed by Kevin Sebastian. And The Raven, performed by Margie Zarcone.
1: The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal. The redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts— They resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve, or to think. The prince had provided all of the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisatory... There were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty, there was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first let me tell you of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here, the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every twenty or thirty yards, and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor, which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum, amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro, or depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood, opposite to each window, a heavy tripod bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illuminated the room and thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western, or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme, and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment, also, that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro, with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang. And when the minute hand made the circuit of the face, and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound, which was clear and loud and deep, and exceedingly musical. But of so peculiar a note and emphasis, that at each lapse of an hour the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause, momentarily in their performance, to hearken to the sound. And thus, the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company. And, while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows, as if in confused reverie or meditation. But... When the echoes had finally ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled, as if at their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows, each to the other, that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embraced three thousand and six hundred seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock and then were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But, in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the decor of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad, His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed in great part the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fate. And it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm. Much of what has been since seen in Hernani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies, such as the madman fashions. There were much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro, in the seven chambers, there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams." And these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms, and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon, there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of the velvet. And then, for a moment, all is still and all is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff-frozen as they stand but the echoes of the chimes die away. They have endured but an instant, and a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many-tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls, and to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal, more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, And in them beat feverishly the heart of life, and the revel went whirlingly on, until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock. And thus it happened, perhaps, that more of thought crept with more of time, into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus, too, it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure, which had arrested the attention of no single individual before and the rumour of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around. There arose at length from the whole company a buzz, or murmur, expressive of disapprobation and surprise. Then, finally, of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation, in truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had out-herited Herod, and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company, indeed, seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger, neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse, that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet all this might have been endured, if not approved, by the mad revelers around. But the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of the face, was besprinkled with the scarlet horror, when the eyes of Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image which, with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers. He was seen to be convulsed, in the first moment with a strong shudder, either of terror or distaste. But in the next, his brow reddened with rage. Who dares? he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him. Who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. It was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the prince, with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now, with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker, but from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party there were found none who put forth hand to seize him. So that, unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person. And, while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centers of the rooms to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first. Through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, Through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon them all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger and had approached in rapid impetuosity. To within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which, instantly afterwards, fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave serments and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form, and now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, And one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all.
2: The Facts in the Case of M. Vladimir by Edgar Allan Poe. Of course, I shall not pretend to consider it any matter for wonder that the extraordinary case of M. Vladimir has excited discussion. It would have been a miracle had it not, especially under the circumstances. Through the desire of all parties concerned to keep the affair from the public, at least for the present, or until we had farther opportunities for investigation, Through our endeavors to effect this, a garbled or exaggerated account made its way into society and became the source of many unpleasant misrepresentations and, very naturally, of a great deal of disbelief. It is now rendered necessary that I give the facts, as far as I comprehend them myself. They are, succinctly, these. My attention for the last three years has been repeatedly drawn to the subject of mesmerism, And about nine months ago, it occurred to me quite suddenly that in the series of experiments made hitherto, there had been a very remarkable and most unaccountable omission. No person had as yet been mesmerized in articulo mortis. It remained to be seen, first, whether in such condition there existed in the patient, any susceptibility to the magnetic influence. Secondly, whether if any existed, it was impaired or increased by the condition, Thirdly, to what extent, or for how long a period the encroachments of death might be arrested by the process. There were other points to be ascertained, but these most excited my curiosity, the last in especial, from the immensely important character of its consequences. In looking around me for some subject by whose means I might test these particulars, I was brought to think of my friend M. Ernest Vladmar the well-known compiler of the Bibliotheca Forensica and author, under the nom de plume of Issachar Marx, of the Polish versions of Wallenstein and Gargantua. M. Valdemar, who had resided principally in Harlem, New York since the year 1839, is, or was, particularly noticeable for the extreme spareness of his person. His lower limbs much resembling those of John Randolph, and also for the whiteness of his whiskers in violent contrast to the blackness of his hair, the latter in consequence being very generally mistaken for a wig. His temperament was markedly nervous and rendered him a good subject for mesmeric experiment. On two or three occasions I had put him to sleep with little difficulty, but was disappointed in other results which his peculiar constitution had naturally led me to anticipate, His will was at no period positively or thoroughly under my control, and in regard to clairvoyance I could accomplish with him nothing to be relied upon. I always attributed my failure at these points to the disordered state of his health. For some months previous to my becoming acquainted with him, his physicians had declared him in a confirmed theisus. It was his custom, indeed, to speak calmly of his approaching dissolution as of a matter neither to be avoided nor regretted. When the ideas to which I have alluded first occurred to me, it was of course very natural that I should think of M. Valdemar. I knew the steady philosophy of the man too well to apprehend any scruples from him, and he had no relatives in America who would be likely to interfere. I spoke to him frankly upon the subject and, to my surprise, his interest seemed vividly excited. I say to my surprise, for although he had always yielded his person freely to my experiments, He had never before given me any tokens of sympathy with what I did. His disease was if that character which would admit of exact calculation in respect to the epoch of its termination and death, and it was finally arranged between us, that he would send for me about twenty-four hours before the period announced by his physicians as that of his disease. It is now rather more than seven months since I received, from M. Valdemar himself, the subjoined note. My dear P you may as well come now. D and F are agreed that I cannot hold out beyond tomorrow midnight, and I think they have hit the time very nearly. Valdemar. I received this note within a half hour after it was written, and in fifteen minutes more I was in the dying man's chamber. I had not seen him for ten days and was appalled by the fearful alteration which the brief interval had wrought in him. His face wore a leaden hue. The eyes were utterly lusterless and the emaciation was so extreme that the skin had been broken through by his cheekbones. His expectoration was excessive, the pulse was barely perceptible. He retained, nevertheless, in a very remarkable manner, both his mental power and a certain degree of physical strength. He spoke with distinctness, took some palliative medicines without aid, and, when I entered the room, was occupied in penciling memoranda in a pocketbook. He was propped up in the bed by pillows doctors d and f were in attendance after pressing valdemar's hand i took these gentlemen aside and obtained from them a minute account of the patient's condition the left lung had been for 18 months in a semi-osseous or cartilaginous state and was of course entirely useless for all purposes of vitality the right in its upper portion was also partially if not thoroughly ossified while the lower region was merely a mass of purulent tubercules, running one into another. Several extensive perforations existed, and at one point permanent adhesion to the ribs had taken place. These appearances in the right lobe were of comparatively recent date. The ossification had proceeded with very unusual rapidity, no sign of it had discovered a month before, and the adhesion had only been observed during the three previous days. Independently of the thysis, the patient was suspected of aneurysm of the aorta, but on this point the osseous symptoms rendered an exact diagnosis impossible. It was the opinion of both physicians that M. Valdemar would die about midnight on the morrow, Sunday. It was then 7 o'clock on Saturday evening. On quitting the invalid's bedside to hold conversation with myself, doctors D and F had bidden him a final farewell. It had not been their intention to return but at my request, they agreed to look in upon the patient about ten the next night. When they had gone, I spoke freely with M. Valdemar on the subject of his approaching disillusion, as well as, more particularly, of the experiment proposed. He still professed himself quite willing and even anxious to have it made, and urged me to commence it at once. A male and a female nurse were in attendance, But I did not feel myself altogether at liberty to engage in a task of this character with no more reliable witnesses than these people, in case a sudden accident might prove. I therefore postponed operations until about eight the next night, when the arrival of a medical student with whom I had some acquaintance, Mr. Theodore L., relieved me from farther embarrassment. It had been my design, originally, to wait for the physicians. But I was induced to proceed, first by the urgent entreaties of M. Valdemar, and secondly, by my conviction that I had not a moment to lose as he was evidently sinking fast. Mr. L. was so kind as to accede to my desire that he would take notes of all that occurred, and it is from his memoranda that what I now have to relate is, for the most part, either condensed or copied verbatim. It wanted about five minutes of eight when, taking the patient's hand, I begged him to state as distinctly as he could to Mr. L. whether he, M. Valdemar was entirely willing that I should make the experiment of mesmerizing him in his then condition. He replied feebly, yet quite audibly, Yes. I wish to be. I fear you have mesmerized, having immediately afterwards deferred it too long. While he spoke thus, I commenced the passes which I had already found most effectual in subduing him. He was evidently influenced with the first lateral stroke of my hand across his forehead, but although I exerted all my powers, no farther perceptible effect was induced until some minutes after ten o'clock, when doctors D and F called, according to appointment. I explained to them, in a few words, what I designed, and as they opposed no objection, saying that the patient was already in the death agony, I proceeded without hesitation, exchanging, however, the lateral passes for downward ones and directing my gaze entirely into the right eye of the sufferer. By this time his pulse was imperceptible and his breathing was stertorous and at intervals of half a minute. The condition was nearly unaltered for a quarter of an hour. At the expiration of this period, however, a natural, although a very deep sigh, escaped the bosom of the dying man and the stertorous breathing ceased. That is to say, Its stertorousness was no longer apparent. The intervals were undiminished. The patient's extremities were of an icy coldness. At five minutes before eleven, I perceived unequivocal signs of the mesmeric influence. The glassy roll of the eye was changed for that expression of uneasy inward examination, which is never seen except in cases of sleepwalking, and which is quite impossible to mistake. With a few rapid lateral passes, I made the lids quiver as in incipient sleep, and with a few more, I closed them altogether. I was not satisfied, however, with this, but continued the manipulations vigorously and with the fullest exertion of the will until I had completely stiffened the limbs of the slumberer, after placing them in a seemingly easy position. The legs were at full length, the arms were nearly so, and reposed on the bed at a moderate distance from the loin. The head was very slightly elevated. When I had accomplished this, it was fully midnight, and I requested the gentleman present to examine M. Valdemar's condition. After a few experiments, they admitted him to be an unusually perfect state of mesmeric trance. The curiosity of both physicians was greatly excited. Dr. D. resolved at once to remain with the patient all night, while Dr. F. took leave with a promise to return at daybreak. Mr. L. and the nurses remained. We left M. Valdemar entirely undisturbed until about three o'clock in the morning when I approached him and found him in precisely the same condition as when Dr. F. went away. That is to say, he lay in the same position. The pulse was imperceptible. The breathing was gentle, scarcely noticeable unless through the application of a mirror to the lips. The eyes were closed naturally, and the limbs were as rigid and as cold as marble." still the general appearance was certainly not that of death as i approached m valdemar i made a kind of half effort to influence his right arm into pursuit of my own as i passed the latter gently to and fro above his person in such experiments with this patient had never perfectly succeeded before and assuredly i had little thought of succeeding now but to my astonishment his arm very readily although feebly followed every direction I assigned it with mine. I determined to hazard a few words of conversation. M. Valdemar, I said, are you asleep? He made no answer, but I perceived a tremor about the lips and was thus induced to repeat the question again and again. At its third repetition, his whole frame was agitated by a very slight shivering. The eyelids unclosed themselves so far as to display a white line of the ball. The lips moved sluggishly, and from between them, in a barely audible whisper, issued the words, Yes. Asleep now. Do not wake me. Let me die so. I here felt the limbs and found them as rigid as ever. The right arm, as before, obeyed the direction of my hand. I questioned the sleepwalker again. Do you still feel pain in the breast, M. Valdemar? the answer now was immediate but even less audible than before no pain i am dying i did not think it advisable to disturb him farther just then and nothing more was said or done until the arrival of dr f who came a little before sunrise and expressed unbounded astonishment at finding the patient still alive after feeling the pulse and applying a mirror to the lips he requested me to speak to the sleepwalker again I did so, saying, M. Valdemar, do you still sleep? As before, some minutes elapsed ere a reply was made, and during the interval the dying man seemed to be collecting his energies to speak. At my fourth repetition of the question, he said very faintly, almost inaudibly, Yes. Still asleep. Dying. It was now the opinion or rather the wish of the physicians that m valdemar should be suffered to remain undisturbed in his present and apparently tranquil condition until death should supervene and this it was generally agreed must now take place within a few minutes i concluded however to speak to him once more and merely repeated my previous question while i spoke there came a marked change over the countenance of the sleepwalker The eyes rolled themselves slowly open, the pupils disappearing upwardly, the skin generally assumed a cadaverous hue, resembling not so much parchment as white paper, and the circular, hectic spots which hitherto had been strongly defined in the center of each cheek went out at once. I use this expression because the suddenness of their departure put me in mind of nothing so much as the extinguishment of a candle by a puff of the breath. The upper lip, at the same time, writhed itself away from the teeth, which it had previously covered completely, while the lower jaw fell with an audible jerk, leaving the mouth widely extended and disclosing in full view the swollen and blackened tongue. I presume that no member of the party then present had been unaccustomed to deathbed horrors, but so hideous beyond conception was the appearance of M. Valdemar at this moment that there was a general shrinking back from the region of the bed. I now feel that I have reached a point of this narrative at which every reader will be startled into positive disbelief. It is my business, however, to simply proceed. There was no longer the faintest sign of vitality in M. Baldemar, and concluding him to be dead, we were consigning him to the charge of the nurses when a strong vibratory motion was observable in the tongue. This continued for perhaps a minute. At the expiration of this period, there issued from the distended and motionless jaws a voice, such as it would be madness in me to attempt describing. There are indeed two or three epithets which might be considered as applicable to it in part. I might say, for example, that the sound was harsh and broken and hollow, but the hideous whole is indescribable. For the simple reason that no similar sounds have ever jarred upon the ear of humanity, There were two particulars, nevertheless, which I thought then, and still think, might fairly be stated as characteristic of the intonation, as well adapted to convey some idea of its unearthly peculiarity. In the first place, the voice seemed to reach our ears, at least mine, from a vast distance, or from some deep cavern within the earth. In the second place, it impressed me. I feared, indeed, that it will be impossible to make myself comprehended as gelatinous or gluttonous matters impress the sense of touch. I have spoken both a sound and a voice. I mean to say that the sound was one of distinct, of even wonderfully thrillingly distinct syllabification. M. Valdemar spoke, obviously in reply to the question I had propounded to him a few minutes before. I had asked him, it will be remembered, if he still slept. He now said, Yes. No, I have been sleeping, and now, now I am dead." No person present even affected to deny or attempted to repress the unutterable, shuddering horror which these few words thus uttered were so well calculated to convey. Mr. L., the student, swooned. The nurses immediately left the chamber and could not be induced to return. My own impressions I would not pretend to render intelligible to the reader. For nearly an hour we busied ourselves, silently, without the utterance of a word in endeavors to revive Mr. L. When he came to himself, we addressed ourselves again to an investigation of M. Valdemar's condition. It remained in all respects as I have last described it, With the exception that the mirror no longer afforded evidence of respiration. An attempt to draw blood from the arm failed. I should mention, too, that this limb was no farther subject to my will. I endeavored in vain to make it follow the direction of my hand. The only real indication, indeed, of the mesmeric influence was now found in the vibratory movement of the tongue whenever I addressed M. Valdemar a question. He seemed to be making an effort to reply, but had no longer sufficient volition. To queries put to him by any other person than myself, he seemed utterly insensible, although I endeavored to place each member of the company in mesmeric rapport with him. I believe that I have now related all that is necessary to an understanding of the sleepwalker's state at this epoch. Other nurses were procured, and at ten o'clock I left the house in company with the two physicians and Mr. L. In the afternoon, we all called again to see the patient. His condition remained precisely the same. We had now some discussion as to the propriety and feasibility of awakening him, but we had little difficulty in agreeing that no good purpose would be served by so doing. It was evident that, so far, death, or what is usually termed death, had been arrested by the mesmeric process. It seemed clear to us all that to awaken M. Valdemar would be surely to ensure his instant Or at least his speedy dissolution. From this period until the close of last week, an interval of nearly seven months, we continued to make daily calls at M. Valdemar's house, accompanied, now and then, by medical and other friends. All this time, the sleeper-waker remained exactly as I have last described him. The nurse's attentions were continual. It was on Friday last that we finally resolved to make the experiment of awakening, or attempting to awaken him, and it is the, perhaps, unfortunate result of this latter experiment which has given rise to so much discussion in private circles, to so much of what I cannot help thinking unwarranted popular feeling. For the purpose of relieving M. Valdemar from the mesmeric trance, I made use of the customary passes. These, for a time, were unsuccessful. The first indication of a revival was afforded by a partial descent of the iris, It was observed as especially remarkable that this lowering of the pupil was accompanied by the profuse outflowing of a yellowish ichor from beneath the lids of a pungent and highly offensive odor it was now suggested that i should attempt to influence the patient's arm as heretofore i made the attempt and failed dr f then intimated a desire to have me put a question i did so as follows m valdemar Can you explain to us what are your feelings or wishes now? There was an instant return of the hectic circles on the cheeks. The tongue quivered, or rather rolled violently in the mouth, although the jaws and lips remained rigid as before. And at length the same hideous voice which I have already described broke forth. For God's sake! Quick! Quick, put me to sleep! Or or quick, waken me! Quick! Quick! I say to you that I am dead!" I was thoroughly unnerved, and for an instant remained undecided what to do. At first I made an endeavor to recompose the patient, but failing in this through total abeyance of the will, I retraced my steps and as earnestly struggled to awaken him. In this attempt I soon saw that I should be successful, or at least I soon fancied that my success would be complete, and I am sure that all in the room were prepared to see the patient awaken. For what really occurred, however, it is quite impossible that any human being could have been prepared. As I rapidly made the mesmeric passes, amid ejaculations of dead, dead, absolutely bursting from the tongue and not from the lips of the sufferer, his whole frame, at once, within the space of a single minute or even less, shrunk, crumbled, absolutely rotted away beneath my hands. Upon the bed... Before that whole company, there lay a nearly liquid mass of loathsome, of detestable putridity.
3: Now recording, inmate number 269, The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe. You may speak when ready.
4: For the most wild yet most homely narrative which I am about to pen, I neither expect nor solicit belief. Mad indeed would I be to expect it in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet mad am I not, and very surely do I not dream. But tomorrow I die, and today I would unburthen my soul. My immediate purpose is to place before the world plainly, succinctly, and without comment, a series of mere household events. In their consequences, these events have terrified, have tortured, have destroyed me. Yet I will not attempt to expound them. To me, they have presented little but horror. To many, they will seem less terrible than Baroque's. Hereafter, perhaps, some intellect may be found which will reduce my phantasm to the commonplace. Some intellect more calm, more logical, and far less excitable than my own which will perceive in the circumstances I detail with awe nothing more than an ordinary succession of varied natural causes and effects. From my infancy I was noted for the docility and humanity of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was especially fond of animals, and was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets. With these I spent most of my time, and never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them. This peculiarity of character grew with my growth, and I derived from it one of my principal sources of pleasure. To those who have cherished an affection for a faithful and sagacious dog, I need hardly be at the trouble of explaining the nature or the intensity of the gratification thus derivable. There is something in the unselfish and self-sacrificing love of a brute which goes directly to the heart of him who has had frequent occasion to test the paltry friendship and gossamer fidelity of mere man. I married early, and was happy to find my wife a disposition not uncongenial with my own. Observing my partiality for domestic pets, she lost no opportunity for procuring those of the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, rabbits, a small monkey, and a cat— This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal, entirely black and sagacious to an astonishing degree. And speaking of his intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with superstition, made frequent allusion to the ancient popular notion which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point, and I mention the matter at all for no better reason than that it happens just now to be remembered. Pluto, this was the cat's name, was my favorite pet and playmate. I alone fed him, and he attended me wherever I went about the house. It was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which my general temperament and character, through the instrumentality of the fiend intemperance, had, I blush to confess it, experienced a radical alteration for the worse I grew day by day more moody more irritable more regardless of the feelings of others I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife at length I even offered her personal violence my pets of course were made to feel the change in my disposition I not only neglected but ill-used them for Pluto however I still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from "'maltreating him, as I made no scruple of maltreating the rabbits, the monkey, or even "'the dog, when by accident or through affection they came in my way. "'But my disease grew upon me, for what disease is like alcohol? "'And at length even Pluto, who was now becoming old and consequently somewhat peevish, "'even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill-temper.' One night, returning home, much intoxicated, from one of my haunts about town, I fancied that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him, when in his fright at my violence, he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I knew myself no longer. My original soul seemed at once to take its flight from my body, and a more than fiendish malevolence, gin-nurtured, thrilled every fiber of my frame. I took from my waistcoat pocket a penknife, opened it, grasped the poor beast by the throat, and deliberately cut one of its eyes from the socket. I blush, I burn, I shudder while I pen the damnable atrocity. When reason returned with the morning, when I had slept off the fumes of the night's debauch, I experienced a sentiment half of horror, "'half of remorse, for the crime of which I had been guilty. "'But it was at best a feeble and equivocal feeling, "'and the soul remained untouched. "'I again plunged into excess and soon drowned in wine "'all memory of the deed. "'In the meantime the cat slowly recovered. "'The socket of the lost eye presented, it is true, "'a frightful appearance, but he no longer appeared to suffer any pain. "'He went about the house as usual, but as might be expected.' fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left as to be at first grieved by this evident dislike on the part of a creature which had once so loved me. But this feeling soon gave place to irritation. And then came, as to my final and irrevocable overthrow, the spirit of perverseness. Of this spirit philosophy takes no account. Yet I am not more sure that my soul lives than I am that perverseness is one of the primitive impulses of the human heart, one of the indivisible primary faculties or sentiments which give direction to the character of man, who has not a hundred times found himself committing a vile or a silly action for no other reason than because he knows he should not. Have we not a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law, merely because we understand it to be such. The spirit of perverseness, I say, came to my final overthrow. It was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself, to offer violence to its own nature, to do wrong for the wrong's sake only, that urged me to continue and finally to consummate the injury I had inflicted upon the unoffending brute. One morning, in cool blood, I slipped a noose about its neck and hung it to the limb of a tree. Hung it with the tears streaming from my eyes and with the bitterest remorse at my heart. Hung it because I knew that it had loved me and because I felt it had given me no reason of offense. Hung it because I knew that in doing so, I was committing a sin A deadly sin that would so jeopardize my immortal soul as to place it, if such a thing were possible, even beyond the reach of the infinite mercy of the most merciful and most terrible God. On the night of the day on which this cruel deed was done, I was aroused from sleep by the cry of fire. The curtains of my bed were in flames. The whole house was blazing. It was with great difficulty that my wife, a servant, and myself made our escape from the conflagration. The destruction was complete, my entire worldly wealth was swallowed up, and I resigned myself thenceforward to despair. I am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect between the disaster and the atrocity, but I am detailing a chain of facts, and wish not to leave even a possible link imperfect. On the day succeeding the fire, I visited the ruins. The walls, with one exception, had fallen in, "'This exception was found in a compartment wall "'and not very thick, "'which stood about the middle of the house "'and against which had rested the head of my bed. "'The plastering had here, in great measure, "'resisted the action of the fire, "'a fact which I attributed to its having been recently spread. "'About this wall a dense crowd were collected, "'and that many persons seemed to be examining "'a particular portion of it "'with very minute and eager attention. "'The words strange,' "'Singular,' and other similar expressions excited my curiosity. "'I approached and saw, as if graven in bas-relief upon the white surface, "'the figure of a gigantic cat. "'The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvellous. "'There was a rope about the animal's neck. "'When I first beheld this apparition, for I could scarcely regard it as less, "'my wonder and my terror were extreme.' but at length reflection came to my aid. The cat, I remembered, had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house. Upon the alarm of fire, this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd, by someone of whom the animal must have been cut from the tree and thrown through an open window into my chamber. This had probably been done with the view of arousing me from sleep. The falling of other walls had compressed the victim of my cruelty into the substance of the freshly spread plaster the lime of which, with the flames and the ammonia from the carcass, had then accomplished the portraiture as I saw it. Although I thus readily accounted to my reason, if not altogether to my conscience, for the startling fact just detailed, it did not the less fail to make a deep impression upon my fancy. For months I could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat, and during this period there came back into my spirit a half-sentiment that seemed but was not remorse. I went so far as to regret the loss of the animal and to look about me among the vile haunts which I now habitually frequented for another pet of the same species, and of somewhat similar appearance, with which to supply its place." One night, as I sat half-stupefied in a den of more than infamy, my attention was suddenly drawn to some black object, reposing upon the head of one of the immense hogsheads of gin, or of rum, which constituted the chief furniture of the apartment. I had been looking steadily at the top of this hogshead for some minutes, and what now caused me surprise was the fact that I had no sooner perceived the object thereupon. I approached it, and touched it with my hand was a black cat, a very large one, fully as large as Pluto, and closely resembling him in every respect but one. Pluto had not a white hair upon any portion of his body, but this cat had a large, although indefinite, splotch of white, covering nearly the whole region of the breast. Upon my touching him he immediately arose, purred loudly, rubbed against my hand, and appeared delighted with my notice. This, then, was the very creature of which I was in search." i had once offered to purchase it of the landlord, but this person made no claim to it, knew nothing of it, had never seen it before. I continued my caresses, and when I prepared to go home, the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me. I permitted it to do so, occasionally stooping and panning it as I proceeded. When it reached the house, it domesticated itself at once and became immediately a great favorite with my wife. For my own part, I soon found a dislike to it arising within me. It was just the reverse of what I had anticipated, but I know not how or why it was. Its evident fondness of myself rather disgusted and annoyed me. By slow degrees, these feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterness of hatred. I avoided the creature, certain sense of shame and the remembrance of my former deed of cruelty, preventing me from physically abusing it. I did not for some weeks, strike or otherwise violently ill-use it. But gradually, very gradually, I came to look upon it with unutterable loathing, and to flee silently from its odious presence as from the breath of a pestilence. What added no doubt to my hatred of the beast was the discovery on the morning after I brought it home that, like Pluto, it also had been deprived of one of its eyes the circumstance however only endeared it to my wife who as i have already said possessed in a high degree that humanity of feeling which had once been my distinguishing trait and the source of many of my simplest and purest pleasures with my aversion to this cat however its partiality for myself seemed to increase it followed my footsteps with pertinacity which it would be difficult to make the reader comprehend Whenever I sat, it would crouch beneath my chair or spring upon my knees, covering me with its loathsome caresses. If I arose to walk, it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down, or, fastening its long and sharp claws in my dress, clamour in this manner, to my breast. At such times, although I longed to destroy it with a blow, I was yet withheld from so doing, partly by a memory of my former crime, but chiefly let me confess it at once, by absolute dread of the beast. This dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil, and yet I should be at a loss how otherwise to define it. I am almost ashamed to own, yes, even in this felon's cell, I am almost ashamed to own that the terror and horror with which the animal inspired me had been heightened by one of the merest chimeras it would be possible to conceive. My wife had called my attention more than once to the character of the mark of white hair of which I have spoken, and which constituted the sole visible difference between the strange beast and the one I had destroyed. The reader will remember that this mark, although large, had been originally very indefinite, but by slow degrees, degrees nearly imperceptible, and which for a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful. It had at length, assumed a rigorous distinctness of outline. It was now the representation of an object that I shuddered a name, and for this, above all, I loathed and dreaded and would have rid myself of the monster had I dared. It was now, I say, the image of a hideous, of a ghastly thing, of the gallows, O mournful and terrible engine of horror and of crime of agony and of death and now was i indeed wretched beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity and a brute beast whose fellow i contemptuously destroyed a brute beast to work out for me for me a man fashioned in the image of the high god so much of insufferable woe alas Neither by day nor by night uh, knew I the blessing of rest any more. During the former the creature left me no moment alone, and in the latter I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face and its vast weight, an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off, incumbent eternally upon my heart. Beneath the pressure of torments such as these, the feeble remnant of the good within me succumbed. Evil thoughts became my sole intimates, the darkest and most evil of thoughts. The moodiness of my usual temper increased to hatred of all things and of all mankind, while from the sudden, frequent, and ungovernable outbursts of a fury to which I now blindly abandoned myself, my uncomplaining wife, alas! was the most usual and the most patient of sufferers one day she accompanied me upon some household errand into the cellar of the old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit the cat followed me down the steep stairs and nearly throwing me headlong exasperated me to madness uplifting an axe and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand i aimed a blow at the animal which Of course, would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished. But this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife, goaded by the interference into a rage more than demonical. I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot without a groan. This hideous murder accomplished, I set myself forthwith. And with entire deliberation to the task of concealing the body. I knew I could not remove it from the house, either by day or by night, without the risk of being observed by the neighbors. Many projects entered my mind. At one period I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again I deliberated about casting it in the well in the yard, "'but packing it in a box, as if merchandise, "'with the usual arrangements, "'and so getting a porter to take it from the house. "'Finally I hit upon what I considered "'a far better expedient than either of these. "'I determined to wall it up in the cellar, "'as the monks of the Middle Ages "'are recorded to have walled up their victims. "'For a purpose such as this, the cellar was well adapted.' Its walls were loosely constructed and had lately been plastered throughout with a rough plaster, which the dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. Moreover, in one of the walls was a projection caused by a false chimney or fireplace that had been filled up and made to resemble the rest of the cellar. I made no doubt that I could readily displace the bricks at this point, insert the corpse, and wall the hole as up before so that no eye could detect anything suspicious. And in this calculation I was not deceived. By means of a crowbar I easily dislodged the bricks, and having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall, I propped it in that position, while, with little trouble, I relaid the whole structure as it originally stood. Having procured mortar, sand, and hair with every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster which could not be distinguished from the old. "'and with this I very carefully went over the new brickwork. "'When I had finished, I felt satisfied that all was right. "'The wall did not present the slightest appearance "'of having been disturbed. "'The rubbish on the floor was picked up "'with the minutest of care. "'I looked around triumphantly and said to myself, "'Here at last, then, my labour has not been in vain. "'My next step was to look for the beast "'which had been the cause of so much wretchedness.' for I had, at length, firmly resolved to put it to death. Had I been able to meet with it at the moment, there could have been no doubt of its fate. But it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger and forbore to present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe or to imagine the deep and blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom. It did not make its appearance during the night, and thus for one night at least since its introduction into the house, I soundly and tranquilly slept. I slept even with the burden of murder upon my soul. The second and the third day passed, and still my tormentors came not. Once again I breathed as a free man. The monster in terror had fled the premises forever. I should behold it no more. "'My happiness was supreme. "'The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me, but little. "'Some few inquiries had been made, "'but these had been readily answered. "'Even a search had been instituted, "'but of course nothing was to be discovered. "'I looked upon my future felicity as secured. "'Upon the fourth day of the assassination, "'a party of the police came very unexpectedly into the house "'and proceeded again to make rigorous investigation of the premises.' Secure, however, in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment whatever. The officers bade me accompany them in their search. They left no nook or corner unexplored. At length, for the third or fourth time, they descended into the cellar. I quivered not in a muscle, my heart beat calmly as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked the cellar from end to end. I folded my arms upon my bosom and roamed easily to and fro. "'the police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart. "'The glee at my heart was too strong to be restrained. "'I burned to say if but one word by way of triumph "'and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness. "'I burned to say if but one word by way of triumph "'and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness. "'Gentlemen,' I said at last as the party ascended the steps, I delight to have allayed your suspicions. I wish you all health and a little more courtesy. By the by, gentlemen, this, this is a very well-constructed house. In the rapid desire to say something easily, I scarcely knew what I uttered at all. I, I may say an excellently well-constructed house. These walls—are you going, gentlemen? These walls are solidly put together. And here— through the mere frenzy of bravado I rapped heavily with a cane which I held in my hand upon the very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of the wife of my bosom. But may God shield and deliver me from the fangs of the fiend! No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb. By a cry, at first muffled and broken, like the sobbing of a child, then quickly swelling into one long, loud, and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman. A howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exult in the damnation. Of my own thoughts it is folly to speak, swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant, the party upon the stairs remained motionless, through extremity of terror and of awe. In the next, a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall. It fell bodily. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder, and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb.
5: This is the oblong box. Some years ago, I engaged passage from Charleston, South Carolina to the city of New York in the fine-packet ship Independence with Captain Hardy. We were to sail on the 15th of the month of June, weather permitting, and on the 14th I went on board to arrange some matters in my stateroom. I found that we were to have a great many passengers, including a more than usual number of ladies... On the list were several of my acquaintances, and among other names, I was rejoiced to see that of Mr. Cornelius Wyatt, a young artist for whom I entertained feelings of warm friendship. He had been with me, a fellow student at university, where we were very much together. He had the ordinary temperament of a genius, and was a compound of misanthropy, sensibility, and enthusiasm. To these qualities, he united the warmest and truest heart which ever beat in a human bosom. I observed that his name was carded upon three staterooms, and upon again referring to the list of passengers, I found that he had engaged passage for himself, wife, and two sisters, his own. The staterooms were sufficiently roomy, and each had two berths, one above the other. These berths, to be sure, were so exceedingly narrow as to be insufficient for more than one person. Still, I could not comprehend why there were three staterooms for these four persons. I was just at that epoch, in one of those moody frames of mind which make a man abnormally inquisitive about trifles, and I confess, with shame, that I busied myself in a variety of ill bred and preposterous conjectures about the matter of the supernumerary state room. It was no business of mine, to be sure, but with none the less pertinacity did I occupy myself in attempts to resolve the enigma. At last I reached a conclusion which wrought in me great wonder why I had not arrived at it before. It is a servant, of course, I said. What a fool I am, not sooner to have thought of so obvious a solution. And then again, I repaired to the list. But here I saw distinctly that no servant was to come with the party, although, in fact, it had been the original design to bring one, for the words and servant had been first written and then overscored. Oh extra baggage to be sure, I now said to myself. Something he wishes not to be put in the hold. Something to be kept under his eye. (gasps) I have it. A painting or so. And this is what he has been bargaining about with Nicolino, the Italian. This idea satisfied me, and I dismissed my curiosity for the nuns. Wyatt's two sisters I knew very well, and most amiable, and clever girls they were. His wife, He had newly married, and I had never yet seen her. He had often talked about her in my presence, however, and in his usual style of enthusiasm. He described her as of surpassing beauty, wit, and accomplishment. I was, therefore, quite anxious to make her acquaintance. On the day in which I visited the ship, the 14th, Wyatt and Party were also to visit, so the captain informed me. And I waited on board an hour longer than I had designed in hope of being presented to the bride but then an apology came my way. Mrs. Wyatt was a little indisposed and would decline coming on board until tomorrow at the hour of sailing. The morrow having arrived, I was going from my hotel to the wharf when Captain Hardy met me and said that, owing to circumstances, a stupid but convenient phrase, He rather thought the independence would not sail for a day or two, and that when all was ready he would send up and let me know. This I thought strange, for there was a stiff, southerly breeze, but as the circumstances were not forthcoming, although I pumped for them with much perseverance, I had nothing to do but to return home and digest my impatience at leisure. I did not receive the expected message from the captain for nearly a week. It came at length, however, and I immediately went on board. The ship was crowded with passengers, and everything was in the bustle attendant upon making sail. Wyatt's party arrived in about ten minutes after myself. There were the two sisters, the bride, and the artist. The latter in one of his customary fits of moody misanthropy. I was too well used to these, however, to pay them any special attention— he did not even introduce me to his wife. This courtesy devolving, perforce, upon his sister, Marian, a very sweet and intelligent girl who, in a few hurried words, made us acquainted. Mrs. Wyatt had been closely veiled, and when she raised her veil in acknowledging my bow, I confess that I was very profoundly astonished. I should have been much more so, however— had not long experience advised me not to trust with too implicit a reliance the enthusiastic descriptions of my friend, the artist, when indulging in comments upon the loveliness of woman. When beauty was the theme, I well knew with what facility he soared into the regions of the purely ideal. The truth is, I could not help regarding Mrs. Wyatt as a decidedly plain looking woman. If not positively ugly, she was not, I think. "'very far from it. "'She was dressed, however, in exquisite taste. "'And then I had no doubt that she had captivated my friend's heart "'by the more enduring graces of the intellect and soul. "'She said very few words and passed at once into her stateroom with Mr. W. "'My old inquisitiveness now returned. "'There was no servant.' "'That was a settled point. "'I looked, therefore, for the extra baggage.' After some delay, a cart arrived at the wharf with an oblong pine box, which was everything that seemed to be expected. Immediately upon its arrival, we made sail, and in a short time were safely over the bar and standing out at sea. The box in question was, as I say, oblong. It was about six feet in length by two and a half in breadth. I observed it attentively and liked to be precise. Now, this shape was peculiar. And no sooner had I seen it than I took credit to myself for the accuracy of my guessing. I had reached the conclusion. It will be remembered that the extra baggage of my friend, the artist, would prove to be pictures, or at least a picture, for I knew he had been for several weeks in conference with Nicolino. And now here was a box which, from its shape, could possibly contain nothing in the world But a copy of Leonardo's Last Supper, and a copy of this very Last Supper done by Rubini, the Younger, at Florence, I had known for some time to be in the possession of Nicolino. This point, therefore, I considered as sufficiently settled. (laughs) I chuckled excessively when I thought of my acumen. It was the first time I had ever known Wyatt to keep from me any of his artistical secrets— but here he evidently intended to steal a march upon me and smuggle a fine picture to New York under my very nose, expecting me to know nothing of the matter. I resolved to quiz him well, now and hereafter. One thing, however, annoyed me not a little. The box did not go into the extra stateroom. It was deposited in Wyatt's own, and there, too, it remained. Occupying very nearly the whole floor, no doubt to the exceeding discomfort of the artist and his wife. This, the more especially as the tar or paint with which it was lettered in sprawling capitals emitted a strong, disagreeable, and to my fancy, a peculiarly disgusting odor. On the lid were painted the words, Mrs. Adelaide Curtis, Albany, New York, charge of Cornelius Wyatt Esquire. This side up to be handled with care. Now, I was aware that Mrs. Adelaide Curtis of Albany was the artist's wife's mother. But then I looked upon the whole address as a mystification, intended especially for myself. I made up my mind, of course, that the box and contents would never get farther north than the studio of my misanthropic friend in Chamber Street, New York. <laughs> for the first three or four days, we had fine weather although the wind was dead ahead, having chopped round to the northward immediately upon our losing sight of the coast. The passengers were, consequently, in high spirits and disposed to be social. I must accept, however, Wyatt and his sisters, who behaved stiffly, and I could not help thinking uncourteously to the rest of the party. Wyatt's conduct I did not so much regard. He was gloomy, even beyond his usual habit. In fact, he was morose. But in him, I was prepared for eccentricity. For the sisters, however, I can make no excuse. They secluded themselves in their staterooms during the greater part of the passage and absolutely refused, although I repeatedly urged them, to hold communication with any person on board. Mrs. Wyatt herself was far more agreeable. That is to say, she was chatty and to be chatty is no slight recommendation at sea. She became excessively intimate with most of the ladies, and, to my profound astonishment, evinced no equivocal disposition to coquette with the men. She amused us all very much. I say amused and scarcely know how to explain myself. The truth is, I soon found that Mrs. W. was far oftener laughed at than with. The gentlemen said little about her, but the ladies, in a little while, pronounced her... A good-hearted thing, rather indifferent-looking, totally uneducated, and decidedly vulgar. The great wonder was how Wyatt had been entrapped into such a match. Wealth was the general solution, but this I know to be no solution at all, for Wyatt had told me that she neither brought him a dollar, nor had any expectations from any source whatever. He had married, he said, for love and for love only. And his bride was far more than worthy of his love. When I thought of these expressions on the part of my friend, I confess that I felt indescribably puzzled. Could it be possible that he was taking leave of his senses? What else could I think? He, so refined, so intellectual, so fastidious, with so exquisite a perception of the faulty, and so keen on appreciation of the beautiful, To be sure, the lady seemed especially fond of him, particularly so in his absence, when she made herself ridiculous by frequent quotations of what had been said to her by her beloved husband, Mr. Wyatt. The word husband seemed forever, to use one of her own delicate expressions, forever on the tip of her tongue. In the meantime, it was observed by all on board that he avoided her in the most pointed manner, and for the most part shut himself up alone in his stateroom, where, in fact, he might have been said to live altogether, leaving his wife at full liberty to amuse herself as she thought best in the public society of the main cabin. My conclusion from what I saw and heard was the artist, by some unaccountable freak of fate, or perhaps in some fit of enthusiastic and fanciful passion, had been induced to unite himself with a person altogether beneath him, and that the natural result, entire and speedy disgust, had ensued. I pitied him from the bottom of my heart, but could not for that reason quite forgive his incommunicativeness in the matter of the Last Supper. For this, I resolved to have my revenge. One day he came upon deck, and taking his arm, as had been my wont, I sauntered with him backwards and forwards. His gloom, however, which I considered quite natural under the circumstances, seemed entirely unabated. He said little, and that moodily, and with evident effort. I ventured a jest or two, and he made a sickening attempt at a smile. Poor fellow! As I thought of his wife, I wondered that he could have heart to put on even the semblance of mirth. At last I ventured a home thrust. I determined to commence a series of covert insinuations or innuendos about the oblong box. Just to let him perceive, gradually, that I was not altogether the butt or victim of his little bit of pleasant mystification, my first observation was by way of opening a masked battery. I said something about the peculiar shape of that box— and as I spoke the words, I smiled knowingly, winked, and touched him gently with my forefinger and the ribs. The manner in which Wyatt received this harmless pleasantry convinced me at once that he was mad. At first he stared at me as if he found it impossible to comprehend the witticism of my remark. But as its point seemed slowly to make its way into his brain, his eyes, in the same proportion, seemed protruding from their sockets. Then he grew very red, then hideously pale. Then, as if highly amused with what I had insinuated, he began a loud and boisterous laugh, which, to my astonishment, he kept up, with gradually increasing vigor for ten minutes or more. In conclusion, he fell flat and heavily upon the deck. When I ran to uplift him, to all appearances, he was dead. I called assistance and with much difficulty, we brought him to himself. Upon reviving, he spoke incoherently for some time. At length, we bled him and put him to bed. The next morning, he was quite recovered, so far as regarded his mere bodily health. Of his mind, I say nothing, of course. I avoided him during the rest of the passage, by advice of the captain, who seemed to coincide with me altogether in my views of his insanity but cautioned me to say nothing on this head to any person on board. Several circumstances occurred immediately after this fit of Wyatt's, which contributed to heighten the curiosity with which I was already possessed. Among other things, this. I had been nervous, drank too much strong green tea, and slept ill at night. In fact, for two nights I could not be properly said to sleep at all. Now, my stateroom opened into the main cabin, or dining room, as did those of all the single men on board. Wyatt's three rooms were in the after-cabin, which was separated from the main cabin by a slight sliding door, never locked, even at night. As we were almost constantly on a wind, and the breeze was not a little stiff, the ship heeled to leeward very considerably. And whenever her starboard side was to leeward, the sliding door between the cabin slid open and remained. Nobody taking the trouble to get up and shut it, but my berth was in such a position that when my own stateroom door was open, as well as the sliding door in question, and my own door was always open on account of the heat, I could see into the after cabin quite distinctly, and just at that portion of it, too, where were situated the staterooms of Mr. Y. Well, during two nights, not consecutive, while I lay awake, I clearly saw Mrs. W, about eleven o'clock upon each night, steal cautiously from the stateroom of Mr. W and enter the extra room, where she remained until daybreak, when she was called by her husband and went back. That they were virtually separated was clear. At separate apartments, no doubt in contemplation of a more permanent divorce. And here, after all, I thought, was the mystery of the extra-stateroom. There was another circumstance, too, which interested me much. During the two wakeful nights in question, and immediately after the disappearance of Mrs. Wyatt into the extra-stateroom, I was attracted by certain singular, cautious, subdued noises in that of her husband. After listening to them for some time, with thoughtful attention, I at length succeeded perfectly in translating their import. There were sounds occasioned by the artist in prying open the oblong box by means of a chisel and mallet, the latter being apparently muffled or deadened by some soft woolen or cotton substance in which its head was enveloped. In this manner, I fancied I could distinguish the precise moment when he fairly disengaged the lid also that I could determine when he removed it altogether and when he deposited it upon the lower berth in his room. This latter point I knew, for example, by certain slight taps which the lid made in striking against the wooden edges of the berth. As he endeavored to lay it down very gently, there being no room for it on the floor, after this there was a dead stillness. And I heard nothing more. "'upon either occasion until nearly daybreak. "'Unless, perhaps, I may mention a low sobbing or murmuring sound, "'so very much suppressed as to be nearly inaudible. "'If indeed the whole of this latter noise "'were not rather produced by my own imagination, "'I say it seemed to resemble sobbing or sighing, "'but of course it could not have been either. i rather think it was a ringing in my own ears.' Mr. Wyatt, no doubt, according to custom, was merely giving the rein to one of his hobbies, indulging in one of his fits of artistic enthusiasm. He had opened his oblong box in order to feast his eyes on the pictorial treasure within. There was nothing in this, however, to make him sob. I repeat, therefore, that it must have been simply a freak of my own fancy, distempered by good Captain Hardy's green tea. Just before dawn, on each of the two nights of which I speak, I distinctly heard Mr. Wyatt replace the lid upon the oblong box and force the nails into their old places by means of the muffled mallet. Having done this, he issued from his stateroom, fully dressed, and proceeded to call Mrs. W. from hers. We had been at sea seven days, and were now off Cape Hatteras, when there came a tremendously heavy blow from the southwest. We were, in a measure, prepared for it, however, as the weather had been holding out threats for some time. Everything was made snug, below and aloft, and as the wind steadily freshened, we lay to at length under spanker and foretopsail, both double-reefed. In this trim, we rowed safely enough for forty-eight hours. The ship proving herself an excellent sea boat in many respects, and shipping no water of any consequence. At the end of this period, however, the gale had freshened into a hurricane, and our after sail split into ribbons, bringing us so much in the trough of the water that we shipped several prodigious seas, one immediately after another. By this accident, we lost three men overboard with the caboose, and nearly the whole of the larboard bulwarks. Scarcely had we recovered our senses before the fore topsail went into shreds when we got up a storm stay stale, and with this did pretty well for some hours, the ship heading the seas much more steadily than before. The gale still held on, however, and we saw no sign of its abating. The rigging was found to be ill-fitted and greatly strained, and on the third day of the blow, about five in the afternoon, our mizzenmast, in a heavy lurch to windward, went by the board, For an hour or more, we tried in vain to get rid of it, on account of the prodigious rolling of the ship, and before we had succeeded, the carpenter came aft and announced four feet of water in the hold. To add to our dilemma, we found the pumps choked and nearly useless. All was now confusion and despair. But an effort was made to lighten the ship by throwing overboard as much of her cargo as could be reached, and by cutting away the two masts that remained. This we at last accomplished. But we were still unable to do anything at the pumps, and, in the meantime, the leak gained on us very fast. At sundown, the gale had sensibly diminished in violence, and as the sea went down with it, we still entertained faint hopes of saving ourselves and the boats. At 8 p.m., the clouds broke away to windward, and we had the advantage of a full moon. A piece of good fortune which served wonderfully to cheer our drooping spirits. After incredible labor, we succeeded at length in getting the longboat over the side without material accident, and into this we crowded the whole of the crew and most of the passengers. This party made off immediately, and after undergoing much suffering, finally arrived in safety at Ocracoke Inlet on the third day after the wreck. Fourteen passengers with the captain remained on board, resolving to trust their fortunes to the jolly boat at the stern. We lowered it without difficulty, although it was only by miracle that we prevented it from swamping as it touched the water. It contained, when afloat, the captain and his wife, Mr. Wyatt and party, an officer, wife, four children, and myself with a valet. We had no room, of course, for anything except a few positively necessary instruments, some provisions and the clothes upon our back. No one had thought of even attempting to save anything. What must have been the astonishment of all then when, having proceeded a few fathoms from the ship, Mr. Wyatt stood up in the stern sheets and coolly demanded of Captain Hardy that the boat should be put back for the purpose of taking his oblong box. "'Sit down, Mr. Wyatt,' replied the captain, somewhat sternly. "'You will capsize us if you do not sit still. Our gun wall is almost in the water now.' "'The box!' vociferated Mr. Wyatt, still standing. "'The box, I say!' Captain Hardy, you cannot, you will not refuse me. Its weight will be but a trifle. It is nothing, mere nothing. By the mother who bore you for the love of heaven, by your hope of salvation, I implore you to put back for the box. The captain, for a moment, seemed touched by the earnest appeal of the artist. But he regained his stern composure and merely said, Mr. Wyatt, you are mad. I cannot listen to you. Sit down, I say, or you will swamp the boat. Stay. Hold him. Seize him. He is about to spring overboard. There. I knew it. He is over. As the captain said this, Mr. Wyatt, in fact, sprang from the boat, and, as we were yet in the lee of the wreck, succeeded by almost superhuman exertion in getting hold of a rope which hung from the forechains. In another moment, he was on board and rushing frantically down into the cabin. In the meantime, we had been swept astern of the ship, and being quite out of her lee, were at the mercy of the tremendous sea which was still running. We made a determined effort to put back, but our little boat was like a feather in the breath of the tempest. We saw at a glance that the doom of the unfortunate artist was sealed. As our distance from the wreck rapidly increased, the madman, for as such only could we regard him, was seen to emerge from the companionway, up which, by dint of a strength that appeared gigantic, he dragged bodily the oblong box. While we gazed in the extremity of astonishment, he passed rapidly several turns of a three-inch rope, first around the box and then around his body. In another instant, both body and box were in the sea, disappearing suddenly at once and... We lingered a while, sadly upon our oars with our eyes riveted upon the spot. At length we pulled away. The silence remained unbroken for an hour. Finally I hazarded a remark. Did you observe, Captain, how suddenly they sank? Was that not an exceedingly singular thing? I confess that I entertained some feeble hope of his final deliverance when I saw him lash himself to the box and commit himself to the sea. They sank, as a matter of course, replied the captain. And that like a shot. They will soon rise again, however, but not till the salt melts. The salt! I ejaculated. Hush, said the captain pointing to the wife and sisters of the deceased we must talk of these things at some more appropriate time. We suffered much and made a narrow escape, but fortune befriended us, as well as our mates in the longboat. We landed, in fine, more dead than alive, after four days of intense distress upon the beach opposite Roanoke Island. We remained here a week, were not ill-treated by the wreckers, and at length obtained a passage to New York. About a month after the loss of the Independence, I happened to meet Captain Hardy in Broadway. Our conversation turned, naturally, upon the disaster, and especially upon the sad fate of poor Wyatt. I thus learned the following particulars. The artist had engaged passage for himself, wife, two sisters, and a servant. His wife was, indeed, as she had been represented, a most lovely and most accomplished woman. On the morning of the fourteenth of June, the day in which I first visited the ship, the lady suddenly sickened and died. The young husband was frantic with grief, but circumstances imperatively forbade the deferring his voyage to New York it was necessary to take to her mother the corpse of his adored wife, and, on the other hand, the universal prejudice which would prevent his doing so openly as well known. Nine-tenths of the passengers would have abandoned the ship rather than take passage with a dead body. In this dilemma, Captain Hardy arranged that the corpse being first partially embalmed and packed with a large quantity of salt in a box of suitable dimensions, should be conveyed on board as merchandise. Nothing was to be said of the lady's decease, and as it was well understood that Mr. Wyatt had engaged passage for his wife, it became necessary that some person should personate her during this voyage. This... The deceased's lady's maid was easily prevailed on to do. The extra stateroom originally engaged for this girl during her mistress's life was now merely retained. In this stateroom, the pseudo wife slept, of course, every night. In the daytime, she performed, to the best of her ability, the part of mistress, whose person it had been carefully ascertained was unknown to any of the passengers on board. My own mistake arose, naturally enough, through too careless, too inquisitive, and too impulsive a temperament. But of late, it is a rare thing that I sleep soundly at night. There is a countenance which haunts me. Turn as I will. There is an hysterical laugh which will forever ring within my ears.
6: Landor's Cottage. During a pedestrian trip last summer through one or two of the river counties of New York, I found myself, as the day declined, somewhat embarrassed about the road I was pursuing. The land undulated very remarkably, and my path, for the last hour, had wound about and about so confusedly in its effort to keep in the valleys that I no longer knew in what direction lay the sweet village of. where i had determined to stop for the night the sun had scarcely shone strictly speaking during the day which nevertheless had been unpleasantly warm a smoky mist resembling that of the indian summer enveloped all things and of course added to my uncertainty not that i cared much about the matter If I did not hit upon the village before sunset or even before dark, it was more than possible that a little Dutch farmhouse or something of that kind would soon make its appearance. Although, in fact, the neighborhood, perhaps on account of being more picturesque than fertile, was very sparsely inhabited. At all events, with a knapsack for a pillow and my hound as a sentry, a bivouac in the open air was just the thing which would have amused me. I sauntered on, therefore, quite at ease, Ponto taking the charge of my gun, until, at length, just as I had begun to consider whether the numerous little glades that led hither and thither were intended to be paths at all, I was conducted by one of them into an unquestionable carriage track. There could be no mistaking it. The traces of light wheels were evident, and although the tall shrubberies and overgrown undergrowth met overhead— there was no obstruction whatever below even to the passage of a virginian mountain wagon the most aspiring vehicle i take it of its kind the road however except in being open through the wood if wood be not too weighty a name for such an assemblage of light trees and except in the particulars of evident wheel tracks bore no resemblance to any road i had seen before the tracks, of which I speak, were but faintly perceptible, having been impressed upon the firm yet pleasantly moist surface of what looked more like green Genoese velvet than anything else. It was grass, clearly, but grass such as we seldom see out of England, so short, so thick, so even, and so vivid in color. Not a single impediment lay in the wheel root, not even a chip or a dead twig. The stones that once obstructed the way had been carefully placed, not thrown, along the sides of the lane, so as to define its boundaries at bottom with a kind of half precise, half negligent, and wholly picturesque definition. Clumps of wild flowers grew everywhere, luxuriantly in the interspaces. What to make of all this, of course, I knew not. Here was art, undoubtedly, that did not surprise me. All roads, in the ordinary sense, are works of art. Nor can I say that there was much to wonder at in the mere excess of art manifested. All that seemed to have been done, might have been done here, with such natural capabilities, as they have it in the books on landscape gardening, with very little labor and expense. No, it was not the amount, but the character of the art, which caused me to take a seat on one of the blossomy stones and gaze up and down this fairy-like avenue for a half an hour or more in bewildered admiration. One thing became more and more evident the longer I gazed. An artist, and one with the most scrupulous eye for form, had superintended all these arrangements. The greatest care had been taken to preserve a due medium between the neat and graceful on the one hand, and the picturesque in the true sense of the Italian term, on the other, There were a few straight and no long uninterrupted lines. The same effect of curvature or of color appeared twice, usually, but not oftener, at any one point of view. Everywhere was variety in uniformity. It was a piece of composition in which the most fastidiously critical tastes could scarcely have suggested an emendation. I had turned to the right as I entered this road, and now arising. I continued in the same direction. The path was so serpentine that at no moment could I trace its course for more than two or three paces in advance. Its character did not undergo any material change. Presently, the murmur of water fell gently upon my ear, and in a few moments afterward, I turned with the road somewhat more abruptly than hitherto. I became aware that a building of some kind lay at the foot of a gentle declivity just before me. I could see nothing distinctly on account of the mist which occupied all the little valley below. A gentle breeze, however, now arose, as the sun was about descending, and while I remained standing on the brow of the slope, the fog gradually became dissipated into wreaths, and so floated over the scene. As it came fully into view, thus, gradually, as I describe it, Piece by piece, here a tree, there a glimpse of water, and here again, the summit of a chimney. I could scarcely help fancying that the whole was one of the ingenious illusions sometimes exhibited under the name of vanishing pictures. By the time, however, that the fog had thoroughly disappeared, the sun had made its way down behind the gentle hills, and thence, as it was with a slight chassé to the south had come again fully into sight, glaring with a purplish luster through a chasm that entered the valley from the west. Suddenly, therefore, as if by the hand of magic, this whole valley and everything in it became brilliantly visible. The first coup day, as the sun slid into the position described... "'impressed me very much as I have been impressed when a boy "'by the concluding scene of some well-arranged theatrical spectacle or melodrama. "'Not even the monstrosity of colour was wanting, "'for the sunlight came out through the chasm, "'tinted all orange and purple, "'while the vivid green of the grass in the valley "'was reflected more or less upon all objects "'from the curtain of vapour that still hung overhead, "'as if loth to take its total departure from a scene so enchantingly beautiful.' The little vale into which I thus peered down from under the fog canopy could not have been more than four hundred yards long, while in breadth it varied from fifty to one hundred and fifty, or perhaps two hundred. It was most narrow at its northern extremity, opening out as it tended southwardly, but with no very precise regularity. The widest portion was within eighty yards of the southern extreme. The slopes which encompassed the vale could not fairly be called hills, unless at their northern face. Here, a precipitous ledge of granite arose to a height of some ninety feet, and, as I have mentioned, the valley at this point was not more than fifty feet wide. But as the visitor proceeded southwardly from the cliff, he found, on his right hand and on his left, declivities at once less high, less precipitous and less rocky, all, in a word, sloped and softened to the south. And yet the whole vale was engirdled by eminences more or less high, except at two points. One of these I have already spoken of. It lay considerably to the north of west, and was where the setting sun made its way, as I have before described, into the amphitheater, through a cleanly cut natural cleft in the granite embankment. This fissure might have been ten yards wide at its widest point, so far as the eye could trace it it seemed to lead up, up like a natural causeway, into the recesses of unexplored mountains and forests. The other opening was directly at the southern end of the vale. Here, generally, the slopes were nothing more than gentle inclinations, extending from east to west about 150 yards. In the middle of this extent was a depression, level with the ordinary floor of the valley. As regards vegetation, as well as in respect to everything else, the scene softened and sloped to the south. To the north, on the craggy precipice, a few paces from the verge upspring the magnificent trunks of numerous hickories, black walnuts, and chestnuts interspersed with an occasional oak, and the strong lateral branches thrown out by the walnuts especially spread far over the edge of the cliff. Proceeding southwardly, the explorer saw, at first, the same class of trees, but less and less lofty and salvatorish in character. Then he saw the gentler elm, succeeded by the sassafras and locust, these again by the softer linden, redbud, catalpa, and maple, and these yet again by still more graceful and more modest varieties. The whole face of the southern declivity was covered with a wild shrubbery alone. "'an occasional silver willow or white poplar accepted. "'In the bottom of the valley itself, "'for it must be borne in mind that the vegetation hitherto mentioned "'grew only on the cliffs or hillsides, "'were to be seen three insulated trees. "'One was an elm of fine size and exquisite form. "'It stood guard over the southern gate of the vale. "'Another was a hickory much larger than the elm "'and altogether a much finer tree.' Although both were exceedingly beautiful, it seemed to have taken charge of the northwestern entrance, springing from a group of rocks in the very jaws of the ravine and throwing its graceful body at an angle of nearly forty-five degrees far out into the sunshine of the amphitheatre. About thirty yards east of this tree stood, however, the pride of the valley, and beyond all question the most magnificent tree I have ever seen— unless perhaps among the cypresses of Ichitakni It was a triple-stemmed tulip tree, the Lyriodendrum tulipferum, one of the natural orders of magnolias. Its three trunks, separated from the parent at about three feet from the soil, and diverging very slightly and gradually, were not more than four feet apart at the point where the largest stem shot out into the foliage. This was at an elevation of about 80 feet. The whole height of the principal division was one hundred and twenty feet. Nothing can surpass in beauty the form or the glossy, vivid green of the leaves of that tulip tree. In the present instance, they were fully eight inches wide, but their glory was altogether eclipsed by the gorgeous splendor of the profuse blossoms. Conceive, closely congregated, a million of the largest and most resplendent tulips— only thus can the reader get any idea of the picture I would convey. And then the stately grace of the clean, delicately granulated columnar stems, the largest four feet in diameter, at twenty from the ground. The innumerable blossoms, mingling with those of the other trees, scarcely less beautiful, though infinitely less majestic, fill the valley with more than Arabian perfumes." The general floor of the amphitheater was grass of the same character as that I had found in the road, if anything more deliciously soft, thick, velvety, and miraculously green. It was hard to conceive how all this beauty had been attained. I have spoken of two openings into the vale. From the one to the northwest issued a rivulet, which came, gently murmuring and slightly foaming, down the ravine until it dashed against the group of rocks out of which sprang the insulated hickory. Here, after encircling the tree, it passed on a little to the north of east, leaving the tulip tree some 20 feet to the south, and making no decided alteration in its course until it came near the midway between the eastern and western boundaries of the valley. At this point, after a series of sweeps, It turned off at a right angle and pursued a generally southern direction, meandering as it went, until it became lost in a small lake of irregular figure, though roughly oval, that lay gleaming near the lower extremity of the vale. This lakelet was perhaps a hundred yards in diameter at its widest part. No crystal could be clearer than its waters. Its bottom, which could be distinctly seen... "'consisted altogether of pebbles brilliantly white. "'Its banks, of the emerald grass already described, "'rounded rather than sloped off into the clear heaven below. "'And so clear was this heaven, "'so perfectly at times did it reflect all objects above it, "'that where the true bank ended and where the mimic one commenced, "'it was a point of no little difficulty to determine. "'The trout and some other varieties of fish with which this pond seemed to be almost inconveniently crowded, had all the appearance of veritable flying fish. It was almost impossible to believe that they were not absolutely suspended in the air. A light birch canoe that lay placidly on the water was reflected in its minutest fibers, with a fidelity unsurpassed by the most exquisitely polished mirror. A small island, fairly laughing with flowers in bloom, and affording little more space than just enough for a picturesque little building, seemingly a foul house, arose from the lake not far from its northern shore, to which it was connected by means of an inconceivably light-looking and yet very primitive bridge. It was formed of a single broad and thick plank of the tulip wood. This was forty feet long and spanned the interval between shore and shore with a slight but very perceptible arch, preventing all oscillation. From the southern extreme of the lake issued a continuation of the rivulet, which, after meandering for perhaps thirty yards, finally passed through the depression already described in the middle of the southern declivity, and tumbling down a sheer precipice of a hundred feet made its devious and unnoticed way into the Hudson. The lake was deep, at some points thirty feet, but the rivulet seldom exceeded three, while its greatest width was about eight. Its bottom and banks were as those of the pond. If a defect could have been attributed in point of picturesqueness, it was that of excessive neatness. The expanse of the green turf was relieved here and there by an occasional showy shrub, such as the hydrangea, or the common snowball, or the aromatic syringa, or, more frequently, by a clump of geraniums blossoming gorgeously in great varieties. These latter grew in pots, which were carefully buried in the soil, so as to give the plants the appearance of being indigenous. Besides all this, the lawn's velvet was exquisitely spotted with a sheep, a considerable flock of which roamed about the vale, in company with three tamed deer and a vast number of brilliantly plumed ducks. A very large mastiff seemed to be in vigilant attendance upon these animals, each and all. Along the eastern and western cliffs, where, toward the upper portion of the amphitheater, the boundaries were more or less precipitous, grew ivy in great profusion, so that only here and there could even a glimpse of the naked rock be obtained. The northern precipice, in like manner, was almost entirely clothed by grapevines of rare luxuriance. Some springing from the soil at the base of the cliff and others from the ledges on its face. The slight elevation which formed the lower boundary of this little domain was crowned by a neat stone wall of sufficient height to prevent the escape of the deer. Nothing of the fence kind was observable elsewhere, for nowhere else was an artificial enclosure needed. Any stray sheep, for example, which should attempt to make its way out of the vale by means of the ravine, would find its progress arrested, after a few yards advance, by the precipitous ledge of rock over which tumbled the cascade that had arrested my attention as I first drew near the domain. In short, the only ingress or egress was through a gate occupying a rocky pass in the road, a few paces below the point at which I stopped to reconnoiter the scene. I have described the brook as meandering very irregularly through the whole of its course its two general directions, as I have said, were first from west to east and then from north to south. At the turn, the stream sweeping backward made an almost circular loop so as to form a peninsula which was very nearly an island and which included about the sixteenth of an acre. On this peninsula stood a dwelling house. And when I say that this house, like the infernal terrace seen by Veth, était d'une architecture en dans les annales de la terre, I mean merely that its tout ensemble struck me with the keenest sense of combined novelty and propriety, in a word, of poetry. For then, in the words just employed, I could scarcely give of poetry in the abstract a more rigorous definition and I do not mean that merely Outre was perceptible in any respect. In fact, nothing could well be more simple, more utterly unpretending than this cottage. Its marvelous effect lay altogether in its artistic arrangement as a picture. I could have fancied, while I looked at it, that some eminent landscape painter had built it with his brush. The point of view from which I first saw the valley was not altogether, although it was nearly... "'the best point from which to survey the house. "'I will therefore describe it as I afterwards saw it, "'from a position on the stone wall "'at the southern extreme of the amphitheater. "'The main building was about 24 feet long and 16 broad, "'certainly not more. "'Its total height from the ground to the apex of the roof "'could not have exceeded 18 feet. "'To the west end of the structure "'was attached one about a third smaller "'in all its proportions.' the line of its front standing back about two yards from that of the larger house, and the line of its roof, of course, being considerably depressed below that of the roof adjoining. At right angles to these buildings, and from the rear of the main one, not exactly in the middle, extended a third compartment, very small, being, in general, one-third less than the western wing. The roofs of the two larger were very steep, sweeping down from the ridge beam with a long, concave curve— and extending at least four feet beyond the walls in front, so as to form the roofs of two piazzas. These latter roofs, of course, needed no support, but as they had the air of needing it, slight and perfectly plain pillars were inserted at the corners alone. The roof of the northern wing was merely an extension of a portion of the main roof. Between the chief building and the western wing arose a very tall and rather slender squared chimney of hard Dutch bricks, alternately black and red, a slight cornice of projecting bricks at the top. Over the gables, the roofs also projected very much, in the main building about four feet to the east and two to the west. The principal door was not exactly in the main division, being a little to the east, while the two windows were to the west. These latter did not extend to the floor, but were much longer and narrower than usual. They had single shutters like doors. The panes were of lozenge form, but quite large. The door itself had its upper half of glass also in lozenge panes. A movable shutter secured it at night. The door to the west wing was in its gable, and quite simple. A single window looked out into the south. There was no external door to the north wing and it also only had one window to the east. The blank wall of the eastern gable was relieved by stairs with a balustrade running diagonally across it, the ascent being from the south. Under cover of the widely projecting eave, these steps gave access to a door leading to the garret, or rather loft, for it was lighted only by a single window to the north and seemed to have been intended as a storeroom. The piazzas of the main building and western wing had no floors, as is usual, but at the doors and at each window, large, flat, irregular slabs of granite lay embedded in the delicious turf, affording comfortable footing in all weather excellent paths of the same material not nicely adapted but with a velvety sod filling frequent intervals between the stones led hither and thither from the house to a crystal spring about five paces off to the road or to one or two outhouses that lay to the north beyond the brook and were thoroughly concealed by a few locusts and catalpas not more than six steps from the main door of the cottage stood the dead trunk of a fantastic pear tree so clothed from head to foot in the gorgeous begonia blossoms that one required no little scrutiny to determine what manner of sweet thing it could be. From various arms of this tree hung cages of different kinds. One, a large wicker cylinder with a ring at the top, reveled a mockingbird, and in another an oriole, and the third, an impudent bobolink, while three or four more delicate prisons were loudly vocal with canaries. The pillars of the piazza were enwreathed in jasmine and sweet honeysuckle, while from the angle formed by the main structure and its west wing in front sprang a grapevine of unexampled luxuriance. Scorning all restraint, it had clambered first to the lower roof, then to the higher, and along the ridge of this ladder it continued to writhe on, throwing out tendrils to the right and left, until, at length, it fairly attained the east gable and fell trailing over the stairs." The whole house with its wings was constructed of the old-fashioned Dutch shingles, broad and with unrounded corners. It is a peculiarity of this material to give houses built of it the appearance of being wider at the bottom than at top, after the manner of Egyptian architecture, and in the present interest, this exceedingly picturesque effect was aided by the numerous pots of gorgeous flowers that almost encompassed the base of the buildings." The shingles were painted a dull gray, and the happiness with which this neutral tint melted into the vivid green of the tulip tree leaves that partially overshadowed the cottage can readily be conceived by an artist. From the position near the stone wall, as described, the buildings were seen at great advantage, for the southeastern angle was thrown forward, so that the eye took in at once the whole of the two fronts, with the picturesque eastern gable, and at the same time obtained just a sufficient glimpse of the northern wing, with parts of a pretty roof to the spring-house, and nearly half of a light brigade that spanned the brook in the near vicinity of the main buildings. I did not remain very long on the brow of the hill, and although long enough to make a thorough survey of the scene at my feet, it was clear that I had wandered from the road to the village and I had thus good traveler's excuse to open the gate before me and inquire my way at all events. So, without more ado, I proceeded. The road, after passing the gate, seemed to lie upon a natural ledge, sloping gradually down along the face of the northeastern cliffs. It led me on to the foot of the northern precipice and thence over the bridge, round by the eastern gable to the front door. In this progress, I took notice that no sight of the outhouses could be obtained. As I turned the corner of the gable, the mastiff bounded towards me in stern silence, but with the eye and the whole air of a tiger. I held him out my hand, however, in token of amity, and I never yet knew the dog who was proof against such an appeal to his courtesy. He not only shut his mouth and wagged his tail, but absolutely offered me his paw afterward, extending his civilities to Ponto. As no bell was discernible, I rapped with my stick against the door, which stood half-open. Instantly, a figure advanced to the threshold—that of a young woman about twenty-eight years of age, slender, or rather slight, and somewhat above the medium height. As she approached, with a certain modest decision of step altogether indescribable, I said to myself, "'Surely here I have found the perfection of natural.' in contradistinction from artificial grace. The second impression which she made on me, but by far the more vivid of the two, was that of enthusiasm, so intense an expression of romance, perhaps I should call it, or of unworldliness as that which gleamed from her deep-set eyes had never so sunk into my heart of hearts before. I know not how it is, but this peculiar expression of the eye, "'breathing itself occasionally into the lips "'is the most powerful, if not absolutely the sole spell "'which rivets my interest in woman. "'Romance, provided my readers fully comprehended "'what I would imply by the word romance, "'and womanliness seemed to me convertible terms, "'and, after all, what man truly loves in a woman "'is simply her womanhood. "'The eyes of Annie, I heard someone from the interior "'call her Annie Darling,' were spiritual gray, her hair a light chestnut. This is all I had time to observe of her. At her most courteous of invitations, I entered, passing first into a tolerably wide vestibule. Having come mainly to observe, I took notice that to my right, as I stepped in, was a window such as those in front of the house. To the left, a door leading to the principal room, while opposite me, an open door enabled me to see a small apartment just the size of the vestibule, arranged as a study, and having a large bow-window looking out to the north. Passing into the parlour, I found myself with Mr. Landor, for this I afterwards found was his name. He was civil, even cordial in his manner, but just then I was more intent on observing the arrangements of the dwelling which had so much interested me than the personal appearance of the tenant. The north wing, I now saw, was a bedchamber, its door opened into the parlour, West of this door was a single window looking toward the brook. At the west end of the parlor were a fireplace and a door leading to the west wing, probably a kitchen. Nothing could be more rigorously simple than the furniture of the parlor. On the floor was an ingrained carpet of excellent texture, a white ground spotted with small circular green figures. At the windows were curtains of snowy white jacinet muslin. They were tolerably full and hung decisively, perhaps rather formally, in sharp, parallel plates to the floor, just to the floor. The walls were prepared with a French paper of great delicacy, a silver ground, with a faint green cord running zigzag throughout. Its expanse was relieved merely by three of Julien's exquisite lithographs au Trois crayons, fastened to the wall without frames. One of these drawings was a scene of oriental luxury, or rather voluptuousness. Another was a carnival piece, spirited beyond compare. The third was a Greek female head, a face so divinely beautiful, and yet of an expression so provokingly indeterminate, never before arrested my attention. The more substantial furniture consisted of a round table, a few chairs, including a large rocking chair, and a sofa, or rather settee. Its material was plain maple painted a creamy white, slightly interstriped with green, the seat of cane. The chairs and table were to match, but the forms of all had evidently been designed by the same brain which planned the grounds. It is impossible to conceive anything more graceful. On the table were a few books, a large square crystal bottle of some novel perfume, a plain ground-glass astral, not solar, lamp with an Italian shade, and a large vase of resplendently blooming flowers. Flowers, indeed of gorgeous colors and delicate odor, formed the sole mere decoration of the apartment. The fireplace was nearly filled with a vase of brilliant geranium. On a triangular shelf in each angle of the room stood also a similar vase, varied only as to its lovely contents. One or two smaller bouquets adorned the mantel, and late violets clustered about the open windows." It is not the purpose of this work to do more than give in detail a picture of Mr. Landor's residence as I found it. How he made it what it was, and why, with some particulars of Mr. Landor himself, may possibly form the subject of another article.
3: (laughs) The Tell-Tale Heart By Edgar Allan Poe. True. Nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous. I had been, and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing, acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth, I heard many things in hell. How, then, am I mad? Hearken! And observe how healthily, how calmly, I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain. But once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I love the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye, with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so by degrees, very gradually, i made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever now this is the point you fancy me mad madmen know nothing but you you should have seen me you should have seen how wisely i proceeded with what caution with what foresight with what dissimulation i went to work I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, that no light shone out, and then I thrust in my head, Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he has passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man, indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea. And perhaps he heard me for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were close-fastened through fear of robbers. And so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern, when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening and the old man sprang up in bed crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour, I did not move a muscle. And in the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed, listening. Just as I have done night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently, I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or grief, oh no, it was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo, the terrors that distracted me. I say, I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, it is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor, or it is merely a cricket, which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain, all in vain, because death... approaching him had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim and it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel although he neither saw nor heard to feel the presence of my head within the room when i had waited a long time very patiently without hearing him lie down i resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot from out the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones, but I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct, precisely Upon the damned spot! And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over acuteness of the sense? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart, it increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased... It grew quicker, and quicker, and louder, and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say louder, every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous, so I am. And now at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet, yet, for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head, and the arms, and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. Ha! (laughs) Ha! When I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men, who introduced themselves with perfect suavity. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I, myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, "'placed my own seat upon the very spot "'beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. "'The officers were satisfied. "'My manner had convinced them. "'I was singularly at ease. "'They sat while I answered cheerily. "'They chatted of familiar things, "'but ere long I felt myself getting pale "'and wished them gone. "'My head ached, and but I fancied a ringing in my ears.' but they still sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness, until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and, and what could I do? It, it was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I I gasped for, for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more more vehemently. But the noise steadily increased. I, I arose and argued about trifles in a, in a high key and with violent gesticulations. But the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides as if excited to fury by the observations of the men. But the noise steadily increased. <laughs> oh, God! What could I do? I I foamed, I raved. I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards. But the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder. 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 And still the men chatted pleasantly. And smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Oh, my God! No! And now, again, hawk! Louder! 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 VILLAINS! I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here! Here! It is the beating of his hideous
6: heart!
7: "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. "'Only this, and nothing more.' "'Ah, distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December, "'and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. "'Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow sorrow for the lost Lenore for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore nameless here forevermore Darkness, there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore? This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore, merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping, somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely, that is something at my window lattice. Let me see, then, where there is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven. Of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, Not a minute stopped or stayed he, But with mien of lord or lady Perched above my chamber door, Perched upon a bust of palace, Just above my chamber door, Perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird, Beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, By the grave and stern decorum Of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, Thou, I said, art sure no craven, Ghastly grim and ancient raven Wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is On the night's plutonium shore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marvelled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy it bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such a name as Nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing further then, he uttered, not a feather then, he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before, on the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore more. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, doubtless said I, what it utters Is in its own stock and store, Caught from some unhappy master Whom unmerciful disaster Followed fast and followed faster Till his songs one burden bore, Till the dirges of his hope That melancholy burden bore, Of never, nevermore. But the raven, still beguiling My sad fancy into smiling, Straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking, fancy unto fancy thinking, what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat, Then, methought, the air grew denser, Perfumed from an unseen censer, Swung by seraphim, whose footfalls Tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, By these angels he hath sent thee respite, Respite, and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, O oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, And forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore, be that word our sign imparting, bird or fiend, I shrieked up starting, get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out thy heart and take thy form from off thy door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door, and his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor, and my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore.
0: We hope you enjoyed Apropos of Nothing, a collection of Edgar Allan Poe's short stories. For more scary stories and plays, don't forget to subscribe. We will be haunting you all month long. For more information on our artists, visit our website at StandbyForPlaces.com.